This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com, where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Matlana, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello, and welcome to a Tuesday evening edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I'm excited because it's a two-parter. Tug Cowart and Hudson Mason. You hear them on Atlanta Sports Extra 106.3 Monday through Friday. Guys, how are you doing? Doing well, man. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, doing good. Thanks for having us, man. Well, um, I'm excited to ask you guys a couple different things. I want to talk some SEC. I want to talk some Braves. I want to talk a little bit of UGA because I think Hudson Mason might have uh, a little idea on yeah. George football. Program. Maybe a little. <laughs> Very <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Um, but first, I want to ask you guys, um, doing sports radio this summer and doing everything during COVID-19 and Tug doing his podcast, Just the Facts, and Hudson... Uh, just gearing up for his SEC network stardom on Saturday nights, uh, calling games. Um, you're busy guys, but how how hard has it been planning out a show with no live sports really being on uh, on a day to day basis? Yeah, I would say at the beginning it was uh, it was a bit challenging. Um, you know, man, I think honestly the harder part has been as a, of lately trying to uh, kind of dip and dodge and, and, and kind of figure out, uh, what you're going to talk about with sports because so much of it is politics. So much of politics and sports are embedded now and they're kind of intertwined. And so, um, you know, sometimes it can feel like you're kind of trying to dip and dodge landmines, uh, based on topics that you want to hit on and, and specifically knowing how you're going to approach the topic and what you're going to say, uh, carefully and, and, uh, you know, articulate it well. Um, but you know, our, our show was never really predicated a lot off of talking about the, the results of the game. It was more of, uh, you know, we try to find storylines and themes and, and stuff like that. We'll talk more about, of Of course, we'll hit the Braves, you know, after they, after a game or, you know, talk briefly on a Monday after Georgia, but outside of Monday, I mean, the rest of the week is talking more about projections and themes and storylines. Yeah, I think that's right, and and I think that's pretty much where, uh, at least in my view, sports has to be because I love sports, 
but I'm also into all kinds of other things. So if you're breaking down the, you know, the every play of every game of, that, that is on TV or on the radio, that you've lost me. Uh, now, it may be different a little bit for, for Hudson because he played the game. And he, like if you break it down like that, he understands it and probably has a rebuttal. Dude, I watch like a fan because that's what I am. Mm. And do I understand what's happening? Yeah, oftentimes I do, but I don't know that I can speak to it and, and be the most educated person in the room. But I actually enjoy what's happening with players, what's happening with coaches, what what's happening with guys behind the scenes other than the X's and O's kind of to, to Hudson's point. Hudson, you mentioned that politics and sports have become intertwined. Like, are you do y'all talk about it before the show or like what you want to touch on and with your program? Like, how do you decide what you're comfortable speaking on what you're not? Like, how does that work? I think it just depends on you. And yeah, we do. We meet, you know, uh, every day, uh, before our show, uh, and talk about every, you know, topic and when we're going to head on it. And, you know, the, the balance is between Tug and I pre-show. We don't really want to give away our opinion too much because then it kind of takes away from the authenticity yeah. of, of it on air. And, and so we really try to reserve uh, a lot of our opinions to each other pre-show for on air. It really creates just that natural emotion and that natural dialogue you're looking for for the consumer. Um, but as far as deciding what stuff we're going to hit on, uh you know, it, it has been challenging. I mean, look, our, our show is uh, two white guys, right? And um, I'll be the first to say that, uh, you know, after um, the George Floyd incident and, and after the Bubba Wallace incident, I don't know if a lot of people are turning on the air uh, or turning on a show seeking out to hear the opinion of two white guys. <laughs> uh, and so... I've tried to kind of just be careful about giving my opinion and, and try to listen more, but we are opinionists. And, um, you know, when I, when I feel like I'm educated on a topic enough to give an opinion and I'm passionate enough to talk about it, then that's where I'll step in and say, you know, this is how I see it. Yeah. Hudson's been, um, really, really, you know, uh, forward on a, on a bunch of different topics. And um, and it's, it's ruffled some feathers, but but he stood his ground, and 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 I'm you know certainly proud of him for doing that, man, because he, he believes in what he's saying, and that's what you want, and that's what he's talking about with the authenticity. But it is right now, it does feel like a landmine, and it and, and a lot of times, Chase, right now it feels like an echo chamber. Um, if you're not saying what everybody else is saying, then then you may, you're even considered the problem sometimes. Where I think true dialogue, and and this is in the world of sports and politics and life in general, it doesn't matter if it's a problem with um, your neighbor or a national problem that we're seeing on every newscast. The the key is communication, and the key is being able to speak with open dialogue. And I feel like right now I'm not sure that's what you're getting because everybody says the exact same thing, and it seems like that anybody who says anything outside of that mainstream, what you're seeing on the news, which I don't know that I think that's what everybody thinks. Um, it's, it's, it's a, um, it's a delicate, delicate place to be. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is just, if you can maintain thoughtfulness and empathy, um, that goes a long way, regardless of whether sure or not you agree or disagree on an opinion. Like if they know that where you're coming from is from those two different 
perspectives, then you'll probably be okay, more likely than not, um, because those are two of the most important things when talking about subject matters like these. Um, the way you approach it and how much time you put into forming your opinion matter. Um, and it's also just like the speaking to the echo chamber thing. There's just a difference between conversations you have on Twitter versus conversations you have with your neighbor or oh, at sure. a restaurant. And yeah, sure. people miss that a lot. Yeah, it's course. just the people in my family or the people that I meet out. Like, it's just I have different conversations there than I do on Twitter. And it's not necessarily wrong. Twitter is just more of um, it's it's a lot of sports writers. It's a lot of people that already think the same way, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if that's where you spend most of your time because then it just kind of dilutes like what the actual American experience is and how actual Americans feel across the board. So it's just, it's very I would, tricky. I would only challenge you. I would, only, I would only challenge you. And if you turn on ESPN, mm-hmm. um, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, ABC, which is also owned by ESPN, it's the exact same conversation. It, it the the talking points don't change. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not happening on the Chase Thomas podcast. I can assure you, Tuck. Well, that's good news. No, it shouldn't be. And that and that's what I'm saying. Like I just think, like we're we're in a better position as people and as a society. And 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 we're, we're delving into something that's not, you know, probably what not what we want to be talking about. We're talking about the Braves and the Bulldogs, but I just think but when life, when you know, everybody like saying, we talked about it, we laid out what yeah, we talked about, it, and sure. it still stumbles into it. There's just no way around it. It's it's almost impossible. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And and but I think dialogue is the key ingredient. And and I don't know that we're in a place in America right now where anybody wants to listen. It's here's what I here's what the message is, and we're sticking to it. Yeah, I don't know, um, Hudson. I uh I loved your analysis of Kyle Trask and seeing something where he like he missed a play, um, I think it was the LSU game, and you dialed up mm-hmm. like something that Peyton did, and you he went right back to it. He figured out what he messed up on. He went and you said this happens a lot. When mm-hmm. you find stuff like that, do you see it in the moment, or do you when you're going back watching tape, you're like, okay, I just no- like I noticed it, and now I'm gonna figure this out. And then you have to like look for it, play after play. Is like, okay, are they gonna do it again? Like, how do you? How does that come? Is that just because you've been a quarterback in the SEC and you just know these things? Or, like, how does that work? Yeah, I think a lot of it, um, hard to put a number on and quantify, quantify how much you see. But, uh, yeah, a lot of the stuff uh, you don't catch at the at the natural glance as you're watching a game. I mean, I, I even think in the booth, it, it's been a huge adjustment watching the game from the booth. Um, and I've thought several times, man, this is how guys, this is how coaches call plays. Like you, you, you have the same bird's eye view up there as an offense or defensive coordinator. And so it's kind of given me a new appreciation for seeing the game differently as a play caller, because my whole career I've been on the sideline. Um, and so the game moves so fast and, you know, the guys are smaller and you can't quite see names or numbers and it's blurry and you're dealing with all these different intangibles. <laughs> Uh, and so you may not see it with the natural eye during the game. And so when you go back and watch something, yeah, most of the time you, you catch something that you're like, Oh man, I didn't, I didn't see this substitution or I didn't realize that, um, this guy blitzed or, you know, the safety did this. Um, you know, I was watching the other day, a a clip of Patrick Mahomes, uh, since he signed his new contract. And this is a prime example of it. It was, uh, 
it was like only his second start and he was playing the Denver Broncos and it was his first third down uh as a rookie on the road first third down on the road uh and it was like third and eight and Denver played him two man and uh Von Miller jumped off sides and on the snap of the ball and I, I realized all this after I went back and watched it on the snap of the ball he peeks and sees at the defensive lineman that Von Miller jumps off side. So he, he, he basically confirms that he's got a free play, right? And so mm-hmm. he, he, catch, he catches the snap. He peeks down at the line of scrimmage, which you're told never to keep your eyes up. And then he scoots up in the pocket and throws an absolute dime like 30 yards down the field. But you would have never noticed because it happened so quickly in the booth that he like checked a guy who jumped off sides to kind of reconfirm to him that he had a free throw and free play. So he could just chuck it down the field. Uh, because he knew it was, you know, going to it was going to be a free play anyway. So those are some of the things that you know you don't really see in the moment. You go back and because of of tape, you get to truly kind of appreciate how good these guys are. What's the hardest part about watching from the booth that you saw? Like, what is the the hardest thing about it? You know, I think the hardest part is just from a from a broadcasting standpoint. Um, there's so many different variables that are going on. And, and you know, I, I really don't think the common folk, the common person understands how good guys like Chris Collinsworth and, and Troy Aikman and, and uh, Kirk Herbstreit are at their job. Mm. I know I've, I've truly, uh, really, really grown an appreciation for those guys because, you know, all you ever hear is about the guys that suck, right? <laughs> all you ever hear about is, oh, I don't like this guy or this broadcaster or this guy hates my team. Well, Georgia um, fans love Gary Daniels, so, from, what I, from what I can tell. Yeah. Gary Daniels. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, and I just think it's it, it, the game, it's, the speed of the game happens so quick, and, and you're trying to articulate to a consumer, you know, in a concise manner, uh, what happened, and do it in an entertaining fashion, uh, and doing that for three straight hours, you know, uh, it, it's challenging. So I, th- I think the hardest part is just, the mechanics of being in the booth and trying to keep up with everything that's going on. And, you know, if you've got a storyline that you want to hit on going into a game, when do you decide that in, when is the right time within the, the natural flow of the game to get on that topic? You know, if I go into a game and I've prepped all week about, man, Jake Fromm is, is really good at throwing the ball uh, to the right side of the field. That's his strength. You know, when is the best time to implement that topic in in a broadcast? There's there's times where like you can feel like ah, I shouldn't force this in right here, uh, and you wait. So I think those are some of the hardest things that you try to you try to work through. Tug, if you get asked to do play by play for Alfreda football from the booth, do you do it? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I've, I've been asked to do it, and I was like, no really? way. I would be horrible. I don't think I would be horrible <laughs> at it. I would need a spotter. I would need all kinds of stuff because I, I I'm not a great multitasker. Okay. And and I don't think to any do guys what are multitaskers. I've I've no, well, no, man. Yeah, like, but Hudson has the ability. I mean, he was just talking about it. He's breaking down a play in the booth. Well, Hudson's and then, just a man among boys. But, he's better than us. He's an outlier. Well, yeah, right. He does. He's <laughs> exactly. It's all that but, peanut but, butter but, that he but, eats. There's, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah no, I mean, let me tell you, Hudson's are some of the best for sure. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I would need so much help. I think um, that that um, maybe I could do it if if there's enough people there propping me up. But uh, but yeah, I mean, if they just need me to introduce the you know starting lineup, maybe I could do that. But you know, everything else, I think I would just be terrible at. 
that's I don't know. I could be wrong. I think he I, I've never I've he, never done David it. Chanley did Partview games growing up, <laughs> and he's did a he? no, I, maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, I know David well. David's a great guy. Georgia grad. He uh, is is a terrific guy. Was uh, is, is the chief meteorologist for the Fox Five. Yeah, and uh, I yeah maybe maybe I, I don't know, but uh, they have a great guy named Chris Berry that. Uh, hmm. His kids went to Alpharetta. They've they've moved down to Dunwoody since his kids graduated. But he still drives up every Friday night and does the Alpharetta football games. So and does such a terrific job. So maybe if uh, if if he's out sick one day, I can do it. Okay, okay. Don't don't rule it out. Um, if JT Daniels gets a waiver, you watch some tape, Hudson. If he gets a waiver, do you think he has a realistic shot of beating out Newman for the job? No, I don't. Okay. Um, I think it's way too late in the game for a guy to come in uh, and win the job. I think Jamie would, would have to get hurt early in the season. I just don't expect them to, to outright beat him out. Um, uh, you know, and, and, you know, people forget Joe Burrow last year when he got to LSU and transferred from Ohio State, you know, he got there in the summertime. And even getting there with a full summer uh, is tough without a spring. And obviously Jamie didn't have a spring, but uh, – Nah, I think Jamie is is uh, the surefire guy going into the season. Okay, I think so too. I, and because of what is supposed to be happening at Georgia too, and Hudson and I talk about this on the show all the time, is you know what is the the leash that Todd Munkin has? And had this not been COVID nineteen twenty twenty, you may have gotten a different look, and maybe Kirby does turn it loose. But I think with with Kirby being there, he's going to have his thumb on the offense because he's like, we've got to do this in the most almost vanilla way possible to make sure that we don't have big errors and big mistakes. And I don't know that he turns Monk and loose at all now with, with COVID-19 2020, you know, when you're coming out of the gate with Virginia or if, if you know, the SEC only plays some conference games, I guess you would start with Alabama, but, um, that's that's another thing, you know. You have a guy that that is built for Todd Munkin's off, offense with with Jamie Newman, but does that get implemented? And then I think it it may a little bit, but I don't know that it does all the way. And even if it even if it doesn't, I think Jamie Newman's still much like Hudson was saying. I think Jamie Newman's still the guy because he's kind of built for, for what Munkin wants to do. I also found it interesting. I've heard through some back channels, some sources that Carson Beck and Todd Monken, um, there's a prior relationship of some sort there. And I, I wonder if people are discounting Carson Beck a little too much that like, I wouldn't be surprised. This year? Is that fair? No, I'm saying this year though. I, I mean, he's been there. Carson Beck's been there. So you don't have the JT Daniels problem of like being the waiver or him just not being there. But like, I guess if he had a spring and he was able to get a realistic shot of trying to beat out yeah. them and um, it would be a little bit different, but I would say that he has a better shot than JT Daniels of winning the job. Like it, or Jamie Newman struggles early. If he has a, just a, a, just a really bad Alabama game, like Carson Beck just sitting right there. Like, I don't know. I, I think Carson Beck has a realistic shot and there's just so many dominoes that are involved with Georgia's quarterback situation with Newman, Vandergriff, Beck and Daniels. Now you like, have five I, on scholarship. I just, what do you even do with that? I That would give me all kinds of sleepless nights. And I'm sure Kirby already has that. But like juggling that, like Hudson, when you're in the QB room, do y'all like when you look around at each other, how does that work? Do you, do you pretend that there's not like this competitive desire to like unseat the other person and hope that this other person transfers or 
do you just are you really all on the same page at all times no yeah that's a good question i mean um you know it, it's unavoidable um you know i never had georgia had a had a scenario where uh you know aaron or i uh even though we were gunning for the same job i mean we got along very well but you know georgia's quarterback room right now is totally different than it's ever been since Kirby's been there. And, you know, you just, with five scholarship guys, the reality of it is, is one or two guys are going to transfer. Uh, uh, it, there's too many numbers. It's too crowded. And quite frankly, I don't, I don't blame any of the guys, you know, the younger guys that may transfer. Um, you know, what you have to be careful of is, you know, if you're Carson Beck or, you know, you're Brock Vandergriff or any of these other young guys, um, you know, I know I'm leaving a couple out, uh, but, you know, Jamie Newman's only going to be here for six months. So, you know, you don't want to leave at the end of the semester. You know, you, you, hopefully you have an opportunity to win the job next year in, in uh, spring camp. Uh, you'd have to beat out JT Daniels, who, you know, if he doesn't get medically cleared, we'll have, I think, two years uh, at Georgia. But, you know, Kirby is uh, he's under a lot of pressure to to hit on the quarterback. That's really been the one thing that has held him back from winning a national championship. And, you know, last year offensively, they took a huge step back from 2018. They only averaged 29 points per game in conference. I don't really look at the numbers uh, altogether because, yeah, you'll throw in a Marist game or an Marist, a, a, you know, a, an F, F, a, a FCS opponent where, you know, you just score 50 points against an awful team. Mm. I look at the in, in conference points per game, and Georgia was like averaging seven points less per game than 2018. So with a great coming back nine of 11 starters top five defense i mean you know it is the unknown it is munkin and jamie newman and you know i think georgia fans need to be super patient this year um and i know the expectations are high and they want to get to the college football playoff but i, I just don't expect the first month of the season if it starts on time for georgia to look um like a well-oiled machine i mean it, there may be some games there where you know you beat Maybe you beat Virginia by six or seven points. You know, uh, maybe you lose to Alabama. I just think without an offseason and a new offensive coordinator and a new quarterback, you got to have some realistic expectations. Yeah, and you said Marist. It's funny because I think that's uh, Marist is on a Clemson schedule this year, aren't they? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Mercer, not Marist. <laughs> no, no, I know, but I, but but I think both of them are on the Clemson schedule. Then. Okay, Clemson. Hopefully, Marist isn't playing Clemson. <laughs> it would seem like it if you if you peruse that uh, if you peruse that schedule. Yeah, it's not like the Georgia Tech schedule, which is just a bloodbath. Um, I don't know what they did yeah. to the scheduling gods to deserve such a schedule, but um, that's still just dark times are ahead i think for georgia tech if there's a world as well um which is good for you guys um hudson the last thing on uga best uga football story that you have not told anyone before oh gosh man uh tug tug knows some good ones i'm you know i mean it takes me a minute to realize uh i get there's so many of them trying to filter through uh what about the uh what about the one about uh, when you uh, chained your buddy's scooter to the uh, to the toilet? What? Yeah, so you know, I get to I get to Georgia my freshman year, and me and my roommates, who are my best buddies now, uh, you know, there was there were some growing pains with four roommates in, in one room, and and uh, yeah. the first month we got there, there were a lot of a lot of pranks pulled on each other, mm-hmm. and uh, 
some of them got pretty ugly and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, like I think my buddy was, was dating this girl and I caught him, you know, taking a dump in the bathroom <laughs> and, 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 and I sent a photo of it to the girl, a low blow move. On <laughs> oh my, my God. Looking back on it. Yeah. So and, good. uh, yeah, I mean, it, he has every right to, to retaliate it like he did. And so he took a dump in a plastic cup and hid it under my bed. And I didn't find it for like a month later. Uh, and Wait, and month? so my room started. A month? Yeah, so my room started. Yeah, my, he, took a, he took a dump in like a red Solo cup and <laughs> put it under my bed in my room. I never locked my door in my room. Uh, and so that's what I get. But he, he, he put the crap in the red Solo cup and put it under my bed. And two weeks went by and, you know, it just started to kind of, kind of smell and not as bad as you would think though. Like it didn't, it didn't That's what I'm trying to figure out. out. A month's a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that says about his digestive tract or his digestive (laughs) system, but uh, it really, it it just kind of lingered. And eventually, you know, I had some stuff under my bed. uh, (laughs) And so I eventually found it and I was like, wow. And then, and you know, I retaliated and, pulled his motor scooter into his into his his bathroom and hitched it to his toilet uh yeah so there's a lot of uh a lot of stories like that and then you know so the first first couple months living with uh four new roommates was was pretty rough i think we were all like you know uh like dogs you know pissing on fire hydrants with all this masculinity you know it was it was a bunch of, you know, guys on testosterone, 19 year, year olds trying to, you know, mark their territory, so to speak, uh, and everybody trying to trying to get along. So that's uh, that I was, was not one of them. expecting that. Did not see that coming. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, why, that's why you have to listen to our show every day because you get stuff just like that. Oh, my God. That's brutal. I, I don't think if I had done that to my freshman year roommate, it would have gone the same way. I think I would have just gotten my ass kicked. Um Weirdest yeah, thing yeah. that you two have found yourself doing in quarantine. Like, what is the weirdest habit that you're like, oh my god, what am I doing these days? What what am I doing with my life? Uh, um, for me, it's drinking too much. I was telling Hudson that the other day, man. <laughs> Just like you know, you lose track of what day it is, and you know, nobody's supposed to go out. Yeah, I, I think I've put on the COVID nineteen. Um, it's very similar to the freshman fifteen, mm. and uh, it's all due to drinking and eating. Uh, you know, Snicker bars or something. Snickers are the best snack. Um, I like that you chose. They are yeah, frozen. Guy. Even better. Okay. Um, um, what about you, Hudson? For me, uh, for me, it's it's been a lot of um, trying to just uh, fill time, like being useful. Um, I started walking a lot. As weird as that is, like just putting my phone down. I got. I just get so tired of checking Twitter. Such a nasty yeah. habit, you know. Yeah. To just check social yeah. media. Yeah. Such a rabbit hole that. Um, you know, I would just, I'd, I'd just like tell my wife, I'd be like, all right, I'm leaving. I don't know where I'm going, but, uh, I'm just going <laughs> and, uh, I just go on, go on a walk and, and clear my mind and, and not take my phone with me. And, and, you know, after a couple of days of doing it, it, it almost became like something I looked forward to doing, uh, at night. It was just a way for me to kind of clear my head and, and, uh, find some solidarity. And so that was, uh, that was Walking something that I started to kind of. Yeah, no, I, I I tell you what, man, it, it's weird when you don't take your cell phone places and you just kind of check out for a little bit. How how relieving it can feel. Yeah, 
I um, that's good, day, man. I lock my phone away um, when I'm writing and I'm working and I'm reading what I need to read. I'll I'll just lose track of my phone. I'll forget that I don't have it in my room. I'm like, I haven't heard my phone in a while. It's like, oh yeah, it's locked away in another room for like seven hours. That's a trick. It's just put your that's phone in another love. room. That's it's what amazing. I love about vacation. That's what I love about vacation. It's like gives you an excuse yeah. to just not find your phone. <laughs> yeah, but. But but the problem is though I don't know about you guys because I uh, on the Fourth of July specifically I threw my uh, my phone in my wife's bag mm. and I'd forgotten about it and and it was wonderful right but then when you finally do get to it at the end of the night or the next morning and there's eighty five emails <laughs> and thirty five text messages and, and I don't know about you guys do you, whether you just uh, you just zero everything out or do you try to get back to people and you know most of them you have to but uh i'm not that i don't thing. have that problem i'm not that popular I well no 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 i just very I quickly know like, that i'm that popular yeah. either but um it depends like emails i tackle all at once so like i'll do that like first thing the next morning i don't like doing emails intermittently all day that drives me insane okay. I, I hate sending out an email and then realizing that two more came in as i was sending an email i'll just lose my mind i can't do that all yeah day. That drives me insane. But uh, I don't get a lot of texts like that because I, I get annoyed. People know that I don't really like texting on that much. So I, I've been ousted really? from those group chats. Okay. So I'm exactly opposite. I despise email 100%. hate mm. it and prefer text. I like text because it doesn't take but two seconds. I mean, you can just, yes, no, come on over. No, we're not available. Catch you later. You know, okay, gotcha. You know, I mean, there's it's just really quick and simple. There, there's not a lot of detail and I, that's the reason i think i like text better i'm a believer in if it's important you'll call me or you'll email yeah, me I, that's I, I, can, I can deal with that um, yeah i can get that one it uh it drives people it's it's terrible for dating by the way like that if you're you guys aren't in the dating game anymore but um when you're trying Thank to God. establish something new and you don't respond to text messages ever and uh you're just like you can just call me and they're like why well, i'm not calling you yeah there's a it's it's a fun thing. Um, it's a it's a fun push pull. Um, I don't know about you, Hudson, but yeah, for for me, I, if if I were in the dating game, I haven't been married nineteen years, man, uh, you know, and and have a sixteen year old son, so um, I just I I couldn't date now. I wouldn't be able to do it. Like I I don't think I'm. Everybody that says that engaged. for every generation. You'd be able to do it. No, I know, yeah. I, 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 just, I don't know that. I I know, man. I mean, because I'm I'm so set in my ways now. Like, I, mm. if I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I think, and, and and that may be an age thing, too, just setting your ways. Like, Hudson, usually we call him to get off my long guy, but, you know, he's, he's you know, probably closer to your age, but has been married a while. Like, he could probably get away with the dating game now. I'm not sure I could. <laughs> it's divorced dad in their their mid 30s mid 40s whatever are they're a fun experiment at the bar they're fun to see because they don't know what they're doing their outfits are like all over the place they are clearly <laughs> in over their head they don't really know who they're supposed to be they know they're too old to be doing this but they're yep. also just like not sure what the alternative is like it's a it's a it's right. it's really yeah. crazy and they're easy to spot it's very easy to spot somebody who's not supposed yeah. to be in the dating game anymore when they're out. Like it's it's you feel bad, That's but also funny, man. I don't know. It it's weird. Like I feel like I feel like we need to go out and like film some of this because you know everybody that I hang out with is mm. is you know friends with my wife and I, so they're all married couples with kids our age, or my son's age, and and we're going to you know to some restaurant in downtown Alpharetta or something. You know, so I, like I wouldn't even know what I'm seeing. I think that's probably happening 
below the radar and I don't even realize it. Oh, I could take you to the Avalon and I can pinpoint every single one. Okay, line. perfect. I can even tell you the ones who are no, married and cheating right now. I, I could do all of it oh. for you. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, this is, a, this is a podcast in and of itself or like a video, some sort of video YouTube series. Oh, I could do it. It's it's one of my favorite things. Dating is stupid, and it's also a lot of fun when you're out and you just see all... Like, we all don't know what we're doing. We're all just in over our head. Um, right. Which naturally brings me to the last SEC question I had for you guys. Um, I'm a big KJ Costello guy. I think that's, like, the most unheralded part of the SEC this year to me, and I wish that we got a full summer um, with KJ at Mississippi State because I do really love the idea of him in the air raid. He's a former five-star prospect. People have forgotten about him at Stanford, but like Hudson, would it be crazy for me to say that KJ Costello by the end of this season is looked at as the best SEC quarterback? Uh, no, I don't think so because um, the reason why we've seen a lot of Mike Leach quarterbacks, uh, whether it's at Texas Tech or Washington State. I mean, look at Gordon Minshew. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm not saying that he was looked at as the best quarterback in the nation, uh, but in the Pac-12, by the end of the year, he was leading the country in passing. And so that is the perk of playing in Mike Leach's offense is uh, it's never a bad idea to throw the ball. That's his philosophy. And, uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. how he got Gordon Minshew to uh, transfer from Alabama. He picked up the phone yeah. and literally said, hey, you want to you want to be a backup at Alabama, or you want to lead the nation in passing? I mean, that's a pretty enticing uh, pitch. Uh, so, I, I'm with you. I think KJ Costello is going to sling the pill around. I mean, they may not win, you know, uh, ten games, but um, you know, he's going to put up crazy numbers. They're going to beat somebody they shouldn't. I don't know who it is, but this group is going to beat somebody they shouldn't. Just it's, the, it's almost like the the Maury Ball in basketball, where they're just they're going to have a day on a Saturday where they just put up too many points and it's just weird. And they just took too many shots downfield and they won. And KJ is just the most talented quarterback Leach has had in a really, really long time. And I just, I think he's going to be really good. I think KJ, I would not be surprised if he's just like, he's, he's a first round pick after this season. It would not surprise me. Oh, KJ's good. But do you believe in Mike Leach? That's the other thing. Yes, I do. As an offensive guy yes i think he'll be able to because that's an easier scheme to like it's far more difficult to institute what jeff collins is instituting in for paul johnson versus going from joe moorhead to mike leach i don't think the mm-hmm. i don't think it's going to be as much of a like a growing pain type situation even like going from coley to monken like those are drastic changes i don't think moorhead to yeah. leach is going to be as drastic as people think and i think that's an easy offense to kind of master and just to be really good right away yeah um last thing and we'll wrap up here with the braves um when you looked at the schedule what were your what were your first thoughts and the other thing obviously is i would you be mad if freddie freeman just decided i i'm not playing i i can't do this okay so so first out of the gate, the first thing I noticed was uh, you're on the road, you're traveling to New York to play the Mets, which, you know, the Mets are a respectable team. They they don't do a lot usually with all the talent they have. But then you play the Rays, which are overachievers and have been overachievers. So out of the gate, you got two pretty good little, uh, little tests, I believe, one being in the division, the other not. And the the – the opening of the season kind of starts that way. And and I don't know that it ends up as difficult as it starts, but you got to get a quick start 
to be successful in a short se- uh, season like the, the, the Braves are going to be up against and, and all the teams in Major League Baseball will be up against. So coming out of the gate with a tougher schedule may actually be detrimental or could be detrimental if you don't have that quick start. To end on an easier note, I don't think is as um, as beneficial. I would like to have the easier out of the gate. That's the way I look at it. To your second point, Freddie Freeman, if he doesn't play, would I be angry at him? No, I, no, definitely not. I wouldn't be angry. I mean, would I be disappointed? Yeah, probably. Um, I'm not disappointed about Marquez or Felix Hernandez because I don't think they are near the contributor that Freddie Freeman would be. Freddie being out of the – I mean, that's like taking Mike Trout out of the lineup for the Angels. I'm not comparing the two. Though, though both are incredible players, Trout's probably the best player in the game. But I'm just saying your best player, you're pulling yeah. him off the field, so that's going to put you at a – extreme disadvantage Hudson what do you think yeah um I think the thing I noticed about the schedule was you know just what Doug said I mean the the first uh part of the you know first 20 games are much tougher than uh the last 20 and so uh you know if it's through 30 games which is half of the abbreviated season you know if, if the Braves come out slow uh or you know this trend continues where important players decide to opt out you know, this is a year where I keep hearing from Braves fans, even in an abbreviated season, the standard, the expectation hasn't changed. Uh, I think that is going to change by the end of the year. If you're telling me that Freddie Freeman isn't there, you know, Will Smith sure. isn't Pittman, and, uh, you know, these are all important pieces. And you're telling me that somehow, some way, the standard is still the same. I just have a hard time kind of buying that, that uh, we'll look at that as Braves fans and go, oh, yeah, you know, if they don't make the playoffs, it was a failed season. Now we'll probably look at it and go, you know, wash it up, throw it away. It was COVID, you know, we'll regather next year. But uh, as far as Freddie not playing, no, I mean, I, it's all a personal preference to these players. I don't know how you could ever be mad at these guys. I, I do think if you're into the data and the statistics uh, and you read the CDC, I, I think that you could make a, a cordial uh, argument that, hey, uh, you know, Freddie, for a guy that's your age, uh, with no pre-underlying health conditions, like you have a 98% chance of, of beating this. Uh, and so, but you know that it's not just about the player, right? I mean, Freddie has kids at home and he's got a wife. And so yep. you never really know the stories about those kids and the people at home. And so, um, you know, you got to remember that it's, it's not a, and then the consideration pregnant wives and, and people like that. So no, I, I would, I would absolutely never, uh, fault them for that. Yeah. So let me ask yes. you this, Chase, quickly, yes, because we have this debate on the show all the time. I'm is, ready. is this season, if you win a World Series, is this an asterisk by your World Series? No. People are right? way That's too wrapped up and overconsumed about stuff like that. Do you consider the Spurs when they won their shortened season in '99 over the Knicks? No. Like we just count that. Like it. Enough time will pass where you'll forget that it's a season that was super short and that COVID was responsible. It's just it's no different than a labor strife type season where you only play a certain amount of games and then you do the playoffs and everything else. Like, no. And it's also just not fair to the players. I think it's kind of ridiculous for to ask them to play and then you're gonna like discount the team that actually wins. Like that seems very silly to me that you're just you want them to play and you want them to care. And then you're like, by the way, if you win, we we're not gonna treat you as actual champions. That's seems insane to me and counterintuitive so no i i think there's no asterisk and i think telling professional athletes or just any athletes that uh their championship didn't doesn't count as much as another type of championship just because the parameters were different is is silly to me 
Well, right on, man. I'm, I'm right there with you. Okay. So y'all agree with me on this perspective because you said you talk about it on the show. So do, are are we on the same page on this front? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just like, uh, dead, no. he's dead red no. That was very succinct. Uh, he was just like, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, still str- I'm still struggling with this, and, and I will preface this statement with this: that mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe maybe my perspective changes halfway through the season, and, and I just see how things evolve. But one of the reasons why I'm struggling with it, it being an asterisk season is that because I hear everybody say it's a level playing field, even mm-hmm. if it's an abbreviated season. And to me, yes, it's a level playing field in the sense that everybody's playing the same amount of games, but right. it's it's a level playing field, even in 162 games based on that. What I, what I see is that this argument only works one way and it only works in one way in the sense that if your team wins a championship, your fan base predominantly will say, no, it's not an asterisk season. But for the example that I just used, if going into this season, you said, in that, or if I told you that the Braves didn't make the playoffs, you would probably respond and say, Okay, who's getting fired? Okay, who's getting traded? Why? Because it, it would be a failed season. So in that sense, we really are kind of picking and choosing uh, like how we're going to deem the success of this year. If the Braves won the World Series, I hear that we'll all look at it as not an asterisk season because our team won. Absolutely not. But if, if the Braves don't make the playoffs and this year is a colossal failure because Brian Snicker decides to opt out or Freddie Freeman opts out and all these players aren't playing, then we're not going to sit there and look at the season as a failure. So it, it, it really, it, I struggle with it in the sense that wherever it's convenient for Braves fans this year to look at the season as success, they, they are, they're going to apply that. And I'm going, well, it kind of works it, both ways or it doesn't work anyway. And so, you know, and, and I think a part of it too is, yeah, you can make the argument that, you know, you may lose your best player, uh, in football, and you may have to play without him, your quarterback, no doubt. But and this hasn't happened yet. But where I'll totally go off the deep end with this absolutely being an asterisk season is if if one of these teams loses their head coach, because um, you just you never really see that. And and uh, you know, baseball isn't. I don't really believe baseball is the manager plays as an important role as the head coach does in football. Uh, but I mean, if Brian Snicker decides to opt out because he's in that age demographic where it's risky for, for him to be in the locker room and at the ball club every day, that's where I would, it would, you would just lose me with this narrative that it's, it's still a level playing field because come on. I mean, if you don't have Brian Snicker there, I, I mean, what's the last thing important to sure Series kid without there? <laughs> if you have Ron Washington there, I mean, he can just step right in. Like, I don't think the Braves World Series chances <laughs> yeah, are... Ron. I, I don't know. I don't think that the Braves not winning the World Series comes down to Brian Snicker being in the bench. I don't know. That's just my perspective. I, I, I have my doubts. The manager in baseball, I mean, first and foremost, we need to get them out of uniforms. Because I wrote about this a year ago. This, this needs to end. It's a weird trend in baseball. It's got to stop. No other sport does this. These really older, like out of shape men wearing these uniforms next to these players look ridiculous. I'm very out on it. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but it's a it's something that I care a lot about, and we need to stop allowing managers to uh, wear uniforms and play dress up like they're still playing. It's yeah. insane. I hate I could, it. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't care less. It never even hits my radar screen. It hits my radar screen every day. It drives me. Yeah, no, no I can tell. Yeah, I hate it. And and That's Hudson perfect. to to speak to what you just said. I've got bad news. Um, humans are inherently hypocritical. 
and sports fans are very hypocritical and that's just part of what's going to happen here it's like yep you're i think you're right but i think that's just the the nature of the beast and i don't think any braves fans i I also don't think anybody's getting fired i think there's like this universal understanding that oh no 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 you think someone's getting fired i don't think so yeah i don't think so either yeah i know that yeah Uh, we're all there together on that one because, I mean, you got to have some balls as an ownership group to fire someone in a uh, pandemic-type se- season. Like, at, And you got to have a bunch of money, and you're already losing a bunch. That, um, that'd, be a, that'd be a crazy move. Um, all right, guys. Well, this has been a lot of fun. We learned a lot. We learned about Hudson's uh, insane freshman year of college that um, is going to stick with me for a while. <laughs> um, we learned Hudson really <laughs> hates my takes on baseball and asterisks. Uh, I, you know what? I will wrap up here. I will say there is one team that deserves an asterisk. And it's because they literally cheated. That's 2017 Astros. Yes. That is who deserves an asterisk for legitimately cheating and changing the directory of their season. They deserve an asterisk. But the Braves winning the World Series yeah. in 2020? No. No asterisk. I think it's fair. There we go. Guys, we can listen to you Monday through Friday on Sports Extra. 106.3 we can listen to tugs podcast and multiple podcasts because you do a financial financial podcast you do just the facts with tug cower and hudson mason's over here doing sec stuff like uh you guys are you're busy guys but, i like don't it. don't don't forget about his uh don't forget about his uh cbs work man with the yeah. uh, nfl on cbs man he keeps that that stuff rocking too all right well you guys take a break every now and then um it, it there's more <laughs> life than just uh being you gotta grind content man. You know creators that. <laughs> Yeah, well, this has been great. I appreciate the time, and uh, we'll have to do this again soon. I hope so. Hi, this is Chuck Dowdle of Bulldogs Roundtable, and I want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Be sure to check out Chase's website at chasethomaspodcast.com and follow the Stone Mountain Native on Twitter and Facebook and listen to my show, Bulldog Roundtable, every Tuesday and Thursday from 9 to 9.30 on 680 The Fan. Have a great Bulldog Day, everybody. back on the chase Thomas podcast i'm now joined by steven drennan who knows the team that just won the premier league for the first time ever very well steven good evening how are you i'm very good thanks chase what about yourselves pretty good pretty good um how are you feeling a couple days after liverpool uh came out on top like it was long overdue with covid but um but how are you feeling right now about the state of liverpool Oh, it's it's kind of surreal. It, it's something like uh, I'm 39 years old, so so I kind of started getting into football when I was about eight or nine, and that was that was the last time Liverpool won the league in the league, and I was just a kid, so it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. Like when you're a kid and you're watching sport, winning something isn't so important, I guess. So this is the first time Liverpool have won the league, and it actually I know what it means, and even then, and then it still hasn't really really sunk in just because. Uh, everything that's going on in the world, world. Um, but also there hasn't been like a parade, parade yet. We haven't seen them lift the, tro- the trophy yet, so it's just I don't know. It hasn't really sunk in yet. I guess maybe my ex- expectation of it is sort of diff- different than what actually happened, and so I can't I can't quite collide those two words yet and make sense of it. But uh, even despite that, despite that, it still feels good. It, it feels good that we're good that we got to finish the season. I was worried that that wouldn't happen, and uh, it feels good to be on top again. Um, which Liverpool historically always were, and um, 
yeah, it's nice. It's nice when your team wins. It makes you feel good. So walk me through it. How did Liverpool win it all this season? What what went right for them to for this all to happen? It, it, it's kind of an accumulation of, of um, maybe four or five years in the making. But basically, it, it started when we hired a, a manager called Jurgen Klopp um, back in 2015. And he's a very uh, charismatic um, coach. And uh, he's famous for, um, in Germany, turning uh, Dortmund into, into a title-winning team. And in Germany, basically, Bayern Munich win every year. So anytime that doesn't happen, it's a big deal. And so he turned Bayern Munich into the best team in Germany a couple of years in a row. And then Bayern Munich bought all of Borussia Dortmund's best players, um, which um, wasn't great, obviously, for Dortmund. Um, Jurgen Klopp wasn't happy about it. He, he basically made some derogatory comments about Bayern Munich in terms of, terms of uh, other people do things better than them. And then Bayern Munich just come along and buy the ideas. Um, sort of paraphrasing a lot but, that, but that's what he said so when he came to Liverpool his, the main thing he was saying was that um, Liverpool wouldn't be able to buy, spend more money than the other teams because um, Manchester City in the league are owned by an oil sheik in, in, in uh, UAE and they, and they can just spend whatever money they want and Manchester United are just financially bigger um, so he couldn't compete in terms of money but his, his main selling point was being able to build a team and, and not have it dismantled the, the way Borussia Dortmund was. Um, and, that's, and that's pretty much what happened. Uh, he, he, he bought um, players like, like Salah, um, Mane for like £30 million, pounds, which, isn't a, which isn't a great deal, um, like, like, and uh, turned them into the best players, best forwards in the league. Um, and then once we sold Felipe Coutinho, who was our best playmaker, um, to Barcelona, he used that money to buy... Um, the best goalkeeper and the best defender in the world. And uh, as the saying goes in American sports, um, a good attack wins you games, but a, a good defense wins you titles. Uh, uh, and that's there basically where it came from. We've, we've got the best defense, and now we're winning titles. Um, what makes his what makes Klopp such a special manager? Like what? Because remember, I mean, obviously, like when I first got into Liverpool, it was during the Torres and uh, Benitez years, and what he Rafa was like, he he was a fan favorite. People loved Rafa, and uh, Jurgen Klopp has taken over as just this beloved manager. Like, what are the, some of the biggest differences for you from Rafa's years to Jurgen Klopp's years? Um, I'm not. I don't think there's like huge differences between them. I think the main difference is is that um everyone knows the owners of the the boston reds um boston red Sox, of course mm-hmm. they're the same owners that liverpool have now but rafa benitez didn't have those owners he had hicks and gillette um which uh, i know have taken over other sports sports teams in america and obviously didn't do so well but the the people who took over the boston red Sox brought with them this experience of how to win on a budget and um the whole money ball thing um they brought with them and adapted it for um football and many people believed they wouldn't be able to do it because nobody had ever done that before in football. But they've essentially revolutionized the whole sport by doing that, much in the same way it happened in baseball. Obviously, it didn't start with them. Baseball started with Billy Bean and the Oakland Athletics. But still, it's the same process. It's, it's someone come up with an idea and then they, they've just run with it and taken it on the only level. And it's kind of iconic that um, the same people 
who turned around Boston Red Sox, Red Sox fortunes and turned them from, from being a team that would never win a title again, again. That's pretty much what everyone had decided. And they're a team that have now won several and are, are one of the best in the game. And they've done the same now with Liverpool. There was the 30-year wait for a league title, title, but now they have it again. And it looks like they're going to keep winning titles because they're just at that point. Um, they just feel like a, a, a team that's going to go from strength to strength. But going back to your question about managers, I, I loved Rafa Benitez. He, he, was, he was a hero of mine. And I think it's important with Liverpool that the manager is someone who identifies with the city or the city can identify with. And um, it happened with Rafa Benitez. And, and he, was a, he was a very important person in, in the history of the club. But with Jurgen Klopp, it's, it's even one step further because we're in weird times politically. Obviously, with the whole um, far right rising, I guess, guess um, Brexit, um, Trump, and Bolsonaro, and it's happening all over the world. But um, Jurgen Klopp's been very vocal about the fact that um, he's very left wing. He believes that if you're doing well, you need to help the people who aren't, and that's that's something that's very Liverpool. It's a a very working class city, um, a very socialist city. And um, one of the, the old managers from the 60s, um, Bill Shankly, who's revered and he's a legend, legend at the club. Many consider him to be the greatest manager of the club, even though he wasn't the most successful. He just transformed Liverpool from what it was into this juggernaut that went for 40 years winning titles. And uh, Bill Shankly is very, very socialist. And he, he talked a lot about socialism and how he, he compared socialism in politics and socialism in football. And so people can see that in Jurgen Klopp, Klopp and it just makes you believe in him, believe in him because people can identify, identify with, him, with him and people, uh, what's the word I'm looking, looking for? Um, but yeah, people can basically identify with, with him and they... Uh, um, therefore, they're going to believe in him. They're going to give him more time to get things right because there was two or three years where we were building up, and so you need someone to, to you need the fans to basically give you that chance and say no, say no, it hasn't happened yet, but we believe it will, and and now it has, and and uh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. The most important player to Liverpool's team this year was who? That's a good question, and. Here's the thing. Um, goals win you games. So Mohamed Salah and, and Sadio Mane have sc- scored 17 and 16, I think. And so that's without them scoring goals, you can't win games. But at the other end, like I said to you earlier, titles are won based on the defence. And the signing of Virgil van Dijk seems huge. He came sack- second in the Ballon d'Or to Lionel Messi. And I think it's like... I think only two defenders ever have won the Ballon d'Or, which is the best player in the World Award. It tends to go to attacking players. And so the fact that he's that highly rated, rated says exactly how good he is. But there's also Alisson, the goalkeeper, who's won the Golden Gloves in every single competition in the last year and a half. Uh, the Golden Gloves is basically the person who, who keeps the most clean sheets. sheets. Um, he saves more shot, a higher percentage of shots than any other goalkeeper. He he's basically all across the board, all the board, all the metrics that you use for goalkeepers. He comes out on top. So it's really hard to say one player because I reckon if I reckon that uh, without any of them, it becomes a lot harder. I think the main difference maker is, is probably Van Dyke. I think he's kind of transformed the whole team. 
Um, he's he's sort of become an icon, I guess, at the club. Hmm. Salah is it's so interesting in like who the icons were before this because it was Torres and Gerard and now like I don't know if any of them are on that level do you think they are do you think any of them are close to like as beloved as Gerard was for as long as he was there and um Torres I think is long gone in fan zone and that's just that was my favorite player growing up so my admiration and obsession with him is different than um other people because you know he, he was only there for a short amount of time and then he went to Chelsea and all that but um <clears throat> What do you what do you think about that? Do you think there's anyone on this roster right now? Because it's so weird that they won. But like, I mean, I guess it's Salah would be the obvious pick. But do you think he matches up as like the who they'll remember and is just this household name at Liverpool now? Uh, again, it's another very good question. I have this theory that whenever we're in our teens, we romanticize everything. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and those are the things that we cling on to as being the, the best for the rest of our lives. So the best music I ever heard was definitely when I was a teen. Mm-hmm. Uh, bands like, like Nirvana. Oh, and same for films. When you look back at films, it's always the films you saw when you were a teen. Going to the cinema with your friends for the first time. Whenever you were you started to have some of your own money or, money or, or your parents would let you go to the cinema on your own to see like a, any film you want. So... I think it's the same with footballers and sports. I think the the players that you hero worship worship when you're a kid, they'll always be the biggest players that you've ever seen. And so whenever you're like an adult and and you sort of see the world a lot differently and you don't really hero worship grown men to the same extent, maybe as when you're a teen, I think it changes. But but even aside from that, I I think um, Liverpool's very much a team at the moment that's greater than the sum of its parts. And it's not that the parts aren't great. They are. They're, they're some of the best in the world. But I, I think it creates this uh, idea, I guess, that they aren't as good as players that are in other teams. teams. Like, and that's because other teams have players that are linchpins. Like, literally, the whole team depends on that player. If that player doesn't exist, the whole team dies. And I don't think Liverpool are like that. I think they've been made into, like, a machine, and they can change parts in and out, and maybe the parts aren't as good. But the machine keeps working, because that's the it's a system that all the players contribute to and, and the system keeps going, even if it's not as, as strong as before, but it'll keep going. Uh, and we saw that at the start of the season when Allison was injured, who's by far the best goalkeeper in the world, in my opinion. And Adrian came in and Adrian's just like a, a reserve goalkeeper. He's not that great. It's like uh, maybe like the fourth or fifth choice pitcher in the team. You'd like, eh, rather he wasn't there, but all the others are injured. So what do you do? But uh, yeah, he's, he's come in and um, he'd done okay. Liverpool won all their league games when Adrian was in the team. If Allison was in the team, they'd probably have won a lot easier. They wouldn't have conceded as many goals, but they kept winning, and that's all that matters. So I think it's very much like Rafa Benitez Valencia as well. If you remember, they were kind of like a machine, mm-hmm. but they didn't really have stars. Like they had Amar, good player, Ruben Braga, he's a good player, but they didn't have any like global superstars yeah. in that team. They were beating the likes of Barcelona with Ronaldinho. Um, they were beating the Galacto, Galacticos of Madrid, which is like Zidane, Figo, Ronaldo, Roberto Carlos. So it's, I think on teams that aren't as well built, you focus on the stars like Chelsea have with, say, Eden Hazard. Everything depends on Eden Hazard. Whereas at Liverpool, that was Coutinho. And once he went, they built a team that was just a machine. It no longer had a linchpin where every success was dependent on that one player. And I think a lot of people want Coutinho back because they like their hero. 
but I think the team is better because he isn't there. Hmm. Do you think he comes back? What do you think happens there? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, in a way, I would like him back, but Jim, the whole Jurgen Klopp era, era, he's been my favorite player to watch. I love those sort of um, players that are just that are just aesthetically pleasing on the eye, the way they move. They've got a lot of elegance and balance and guile on the ball. That's the players I love watching. My my favorite, my favorite player to watch of all time is Zinedine Zidane. And he just had all of that, that. He just glided across the pitch. He exploded. It was amazing to watch. To watch. And so Coutinho is probably the closest we've ever had to that. But I don't think we become a better, a better team when you put him in, him in. Because I think all of that, that intangible stuff you lose um, to, to do with um, the players all working for each other, moving for each other, on and off the ball, how, how much they press and work and harry the other team. I think a lot of that depends on, on, on all the players being on the same wavelength. And I think Cuccino is very much an individualist. He's a uh, uh, he's like a star that needs a team to be built around him. And when that happened at Liverpool, the team wasn't great, but Cuccino looked great. And I think one of two things would happen if he came back. He would either need that to happen again, and we might suffer because of it. Or we wouldn't build a team around him the way that it happened in Barcelona when he went there. And then he just looks like an an outsider to the rest of the team. So I'm not sure if he came back, it would be a great thing. I would really like him to come back, but I also I just don't see it happening. But there's also the whole thing of age and finance and how much he earns now and water under the bridge and whether Cucino, um, and whether Jurgen Klopp brings back a player that, that wanted to go and, and forced his way out because... He brought back players in the past, like um, Gotze and Sahin, when they left Dortmund and went to other teams. But I think at the time, he was understanding of why they left. I don't I don't think he was understanding of why Coutinho left. He said to Coutinho before he left, if you leave and go to another team, you're just another player to that team. But if you stay here, you'll be hero-worshipped and, and they'll build a statue of you. And, and then he left. And I think, I think Jurgen Klopp would have drawn a line under that chapter and moved on. But you never know. Never say never, as they say. Should Liverpool be considered the favourites next year? Yes, definitely, 100%. Okay. Uh, they're reigning champions, and I think Manchester City are on a transition phase. They need to rebuild their team. Their best players are, are players like um, Fernandinho um, um Aguero. They're both in their 30s. Um, and they're on a they, their, their careers are on the downtrend now as they move towards retirement. So... I think it's very, very hard to replace players like that. Whereas, whereas Liverpool are in the peak years of, of their um, um, playing careers, that uh, uh, 24 to 29 sweet spot, all of Liverpool's key players are in that age bracket. So I think Liverpool have maybe like two or three trophy seasons in them where they can go after trophies and not really worry too much about changing the team. Whereas I think Manchester City need to rebuild the team. Manchester United, though. Things are looking up. What has changed with Manchester United? How are they starting to get back on track? What have you seen? Um, Manchester, Manchester United are very interesting uh, at the moment because they remind me a lot of Liverpool in the, in the Hulier years, those sort of early 2000 years, where they're a very good team when they're counter-attacking, but when they need to break a team down, no, not so much. And recently they've been doing that since I've signed uh, Bruno, but um, I was looking at the numbers at them, and, and something that's very interesting is this. Um, Manchester United have only won two games after going behind this season. 
And if you remember the years where Manchester United were successful, they they had the famous Fergie time, where basically uh, they would keep going at teams until they got what they wanted out of them and win game, games. So even when teams went ahead, um, the game wasn't over. Whereas now, it doesn't feel like that with Manchester United. Um, so they've only won two out of 15 games after going behind, um, which is an average of 0.7 points per game. Uh, whereas Liverpool, the, the, the champions, they've won five out of eight after going behind. So not only are they rarely going behind, but when they do, they win anyway. Um, and they're averaging two points per game after going behind. So um, it, it kinda, it kinda, it's that whole winning mentality, I guess. Um, and Liverpool are known as the mentality giants. Uh, and I, I wondered, is that something that's a thing? Is it actually measurable? Is it tangible in some sort of way? And, and I guess numbers like this, is, this is what makes it tangible. Um, but even looking at other, looking at other, other things, um, I was looking at game state analysis, which is, which is basically how well a team performs based on, on what position the game's in. So if you imagine, imagine a game is a, t- a tied, game, tied game, how well the team performs when the game's tied. When they're ahead, how well how well they perform. When they're behind, how well they perform. And my thinking before I looked at it was a team that perform, performs well when they're behind is a team that's going to win things because they're never beaten. Whereas a team that gives up when they're behind, their numbers are going to look worse when they're when they're behind. And and uh, so I was looking at uh, Liverpool, and when they're behind, they're at their best. Um, they uh, let, let me look at the numbers here just to confirm, but. Uh, yeah, so when Liverpool are behind, uh, 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 yeah, when Liverpool are behind, they outperform their expected goals by 120. Uh, sorry, 140 percent of expected goals, which basically means if they're expected to score 10 goals in a losing position, they're scoring uh, 14 goals from a losing position. And um, so, looking at Manchester United, when they're behind, they perform at 84 percent of their expected goals. So they struggle to score goals when goals when they're behind, uh, compared to Liverpool. And then when they're ahead, Liverpool perform at eighty-four percent of expected goals when they're ahead. So they take their foot off the paddle when they're ahead. Ahead, and uh, Manchester United score at um, one hundred and nineteen percent above expected goals when they're ahead. So essentially, when they're ahead in games, they put teams to the sword, and then they rack up their numbers. And so when you look at them beating Bournemouth yesterday uh, the other day by like five-two. That's great, great. But what, ha- what happened there is they got ahead and just put Bournemouth to the sword. And the problem is actually when you want to win things, it's coming back from behind and actually getting ahead in the first place. And on that note, when, Li- when Liverpool are drawing a game, they perform at 125% of their expected goals. So again, they're, they perform at their best when they're behind, then tying, and then when they're ahead in that order. Manchester United, the order is the opposite. When they're when they're ahead, they're flying. When they need to get ahead in the game, they're sort of average. And when they're behind, they struggle. And I think that's the interesting thing about about the whole mentality chance thing, is uh, when Liverpool have this real winning mentality, and they're never going to give up on the pitch. They're going the the more they're struggling, the better they're going to play play. And I think that's a sign of a team that wins titles. Whereas Manchester United are a team that uh, struggles when they go behind. And uh, flies when whenever they're ahead, when they have they have that confidence from being ahead, um, and that will be interesting whenever they're having bad moments because uh, whenever they're in a dip, whenever they're um, having bad games, can they can they turn around that and and still get results, still get points from them, 
um, because that's what you need for champions. But on that note, I was actually looking at the same for Manchester City. And they're pretty much the exact same as Manchester United, but even even more extreme. Um, they perform at 60% of expected goals whenever they're um, behind, which is remarkably low. It's it's the lowest I've seen of all the teams I've looked at. Um, and, and again, it's that thing about um, uh, mentality of champions. I think um, Manchester City's uh, strong mentality players were players like Vincent Kompany, Aguero, Fernandinho, um, and the, all of that experience is now going as they need to phase out those players. And so the more that they're needing to re- rely on players like Gabriel Jesus and uh, um, Faden as well in midfield, they're young and experienced players that don't have that winning mentality maybe yet. The players like Aguero, David Silva, Fernandinho, Vincent Company, who's even gone. They, they don't have that same mentality yet. And I think that's the difference now between the, the two teams. Interesting. So, do you are you a believer that it's going to hold up that Manchester United is they're fine long term now? Um, it's hard to say. Um, we we never really know what's going on inside a football club. My concern with Manchester United was always how they spent spent money. They they're a very rich team, but they kind of just threw money away for for so many years, and um, they haven't really really changed anything in terms of personnel in that sense. So the same people who were people who were throwing money away, he's he's still the guy in, ter- in charge there. It's um, um, Edward Woodward, and um, the players he's buying are doing better now. But I'm still not still not so sure. Like Harry Maguire, for example, it seems it seems like at least once a month we we see a, a goal scored where where Harry Maguire just looks very very poorly suited to playing in open spaces, and the the more um, attacking your team is, I guess, the more dominant your team is the more you have to defend high up the pitch. And I think the more Harry Maguire is asked to do that, the more he struggles. Um, and it's the same with Aaron Wan-Bissaka. He's another player that they've signed. And uh, he makes lots of tackles and does a lot does a lot of work in defence. But when, you, when you're a dominant team, again, the important thing is what you're doing on the ball. You're going to have a lot of the ball. How good are you with the ball? And I was looking at something today that showed that um, Manchester United are giving the ball away and... In within 40 meters of their own goal, uh, 150 times so far this season, and when you look at a graph of it, it's almost all on their right hand side. Uh, maybe like 70 percent of it is on their right side where uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka is, and they've spent a lot of money on him. And and if he isn't someone that's going to be good on the ball, if he's going to cost them possession deep in their own half, I don't think you can build a title-winning team around players that aren't strong on the ball. And a team that's going to dominate a league. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it works out. And and there's a whole thing about how players grow and adapt at a bigger club. I, I'm not someone who really believes in that so much. I think whenever a player's in the first team and he's playing every week, you can't really change him into something else. Um, training's more about maintaining levels, um, tactical training, recovery sessions to regain your, your fitness and sharpness before the next game. I don't think you remodel a player into something else you need. So when I see a, a player that's struggling technically in a team that's going to dominate the ball in the future to win titles, I think you can't really build a title-winning team around them. And, and we've seen the same with Liverpool when Jurgen Klopp came because we had Nathaniel Klein. And Nathaniel Klein is the best defensive right-back in the league, in my opinion. But whenever he had the ball, he didn't. He was never really a threat with it. He wasn't 
he didn't give away the ball a lot. He wasn't like bad on the ball in that sense. He just wasn't a threat, which meant teams didn't really care whether he got on the ball or not. They wouldn't rush out to close him down, creating space for other players. They just let him have the ball because there was no threat. The moment Trent Alexander-Arnold came into the team, teams were terrified to give him the same space because he can pick out a cross or a pass or switch it to the opposite side of the pitch. He's, he's a constant threat. He's like having Steven Gerrard at right back. It's just insane how good he is with the ball. And immediately teams have a problem because you can't just give him that space. You have to go out and close him down. That means you create space behind you when you do so. Other players can then um, find space, make runs. And so it changes the whole dynamic of the way the team plays. And then we got Andrew Robertson on the, on the left. Exact same thing happens. Teams can't just let the fullbacks have the ball. The ball. And United just don't have that at the moment. They, at fullback, they have Luke Shaw and, and uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka. And I, I, don't th- I don't see that threat there. Um, so they still seem to have a lot they need to do. Need to do. And I still don't know whether Edward Woodward has an eye for a good player. Um, they got Bruno, who looks really good. Uh, one player doesn't really make a whole team. Uh, I think they need more. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But they're on a better p- better path now than they were maybe two years ago for sure. But I don't know. It, it, they, I still need to see more, I guess. All right. Well, this has been great. I appreciate the time, Stephen. Is there anything we should check out from you this week on everywhere you're writing and working? Um, actually, I've just released a, a Patreon. I'm, I'm going to create a website and I'm going to start doing my own podcast. I'm just trying to cover my costs for it because of the whole um covid thing no one was paying writers so uh i need to find a, a more creative process the the raising funds for that so um that that's the next thing i'm doing i've also got an article coming out this week on Mohamed salah um it's basically just talking about um he's accused of being a bad finisher and um how people try to quantify things using stats so what people do is they say Mohamed salah is a bad finisher and here's um a stat that proves it for example the number of big chances he misses uh, and what often people happen is they take something that measures something else entirely and rename it into what they want it to mean. So missing a lot of big chances doesn't mean you're a bad finisher. It just means that you're a player that gets a lot of big chances and you miss some of them. And the important thing is proportionately, how many do you miss? Are you still scoring goals? Are you scoring goals at a acceptable rate? Uh, your conversion rates are good. So it's basically just talking about how People use stats wrong, I guess, on Twitter. And it's about winning arguments, uh, scoring clout, things like that. But it's very disingenuous and I don't really like it. So I'm just trying to uh, frame that argument um, into basically being something fair and saying, how can we objectively measure how good this player is at finishing? Uh, So let's do that and see where he stands. All right. Well, go do that. Keep up the great work, sir. I'm excited to see what happens to the Patreon. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Thank you very much. Yes, I'd love to. And uh, good luck with your podcast. This is Ben Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Nicely done, nephew.
Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.